Welcome to The Servant Marketer, a podcast where we explore the crossroads of servant leadership in the marketing profession. I'm your host, Jenny Petty. In each episode, I welcome marketing leaders, marketers, academics, creatives, and entrepreneurs to explore how marketing can harm or serve society and how we can develop better marketing leaders and less of the bad and mediocre bosses who do more harm than they'll ever know. In this special 10-part series, we're diving into the 10 characteristics of servant leadership. Each episode focuses on one characteristic and looks into things like empathy, listening, commitment to the growth of people, and healing. I hope you'll join me each week as we tackle how marketers can serve first. Welcome back to The Servant Marketer. This week's topic is persuasion, one of the 10 characteristics of servant leadership. Dr. John Horseman writes in his book, Servant Leaders in Training, Relationships flourish when there is respect, honesty, trust, and authenticity. Whereas self-aggrandizement, coercion, and manipulation create distrust, resistance, pain, and dysfunction. Servant leadership does not harbor tyranny, cruelty, coercion, oppression, lying, cheating, or swindling. When I think about today's topic of persuasion, I can't help but think about how much relationships matter. There is no persuasion without trust, and today's guest, Teresa Valerio Parrott, is a master relationship builder, as well as a seasoned communications pro. Teresa describes her job as truthfully sharing excellence and genuinely owning mistakes because she knows that honesty is present in all sound, proactive, and crisis outreach. Not only is she the principal of TVP Communications, a public relations firm focused on higher education, but she's also known as the firm's resident president whisperer for her ability to get senior administrators to share their thought leadership expertise. With over two decades of work in higher education, Teresa has only known a career focused on making higher education relatable, presidents and boards' decisions understandable, and student and faculty successes known. She served as Senior Vice President for Widemeyer Communications Higher Education Practice and Vice President of Media Relations and Crisis Communications for Simpson Scarborough before starting her own firm. Teresa earned a bachelor's degree in communications with a minor in environmental biology and a master's degree in public administration with emphasis in state and local government and nonprofit management, both from the University of Colorado. She didn't stop there, though. She holds accreditation in public relations from the Public Relations Society of America and is pursuing a doctorate degree in higher education from the Simmons School of Education at Southern Methodist University. She is the co-host of the Trusted Voices podcast. And in full disclosure, My employer, the University of Montana, is a client of TVP Communications, and this podcast does not represent their views or opinions. Teresa, welcome to The Servant Marketer. I am so thrilled to have you join me today. I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. We've been lucky enough to work together and collaborate over the last year professionally, but I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. I saw you present at a conference years and years ago, and I was so slightly intimidated but impressed by you. And I would love to know, you know, you're the principal and the founder of TVP Communications, which is a group that focuses on public relations and communications in the higher ed space. How did you end up starting your own company? What was your journey like? To be honest, this isn't the path that I saw myself following. I took many different ways of getting to this point. I sampled a number of majors and looked at a number of fields as an undergrad um, that ranged from pharmacy to environmental biology to elementary school teacher and ended up in communications, which maybe elementary school teacher was the perfect path for me. I note for everyone when I do media training that anyone can have their career veer into communications. 
Um, and I say that because I started my career as a policy wonk in game communications responsibilities because my governing board said that I could make complex concepts relatable. Um, and I opened my own firm almost 11 years ago because I had worked at a boutique agency and then at a larger firm, and I learned from each of those experiences. But what I really carried away from both, kind of the foundational principle of TVP communications, and that's that we do good work and we do it until it's done. I invited you onto this episode to talk about persuasion. This is a special series of The Servant Marketer that's looking at the 10 characteristics of servant leadership, and persuasion is one of them. And when I think about what people external to our career paths think about marketing communications professionals, I don't know if we are seen as being persuasive or if we are seen as being more manipulative. And I think about the pop culture icons that have shown up in this space, like the Don Drapers or the Olivia Popes. And I'm curious, like, what are the misperceptions that you've experienced as you've built this firm and in your career? So I do have a funny Olivia Pope story, and that is when um, her show first um, started, I watched an episode and I turned to my husband at the end of it and I said, I feel like I'm at work. So I've only ever seen one episode. So there you go. Um, but I think that there is this interesting range of personas that I think people want us to fill. And there is that sophistication of the Don Draper and the Olivia Pope that they think we have. And I think I only know maybe Binti is that cool. The rest of us aren't really that cool. So that's Binti Harvey, one of our colleagues. Um, but I would say is that these personas, besides the cool factor, um, that people want us to fill, they kind of fit into four buckets, I think. The first is that there's this concept that we're the keeper of the silver bullets, right? And that's that people can bring us in at any point, usually at the last minute, and want us to fix something. And we have this silver bullet that can just take care of it purely through the crafting of words. Um, I would say the second is we're brought in quite often to be the person who says no. Nobody else in the room had the courage or the confidence or the relationship to say something wasn't a good idea. So usually again at the last minute, they'll trot in the communicator and we have to be the one that says no. The third is, and it's kind of tied to the second, is that we're usually only the person in the room who's brave enough to play devil's advocate it's usually through playing devil's advocate that you get to know, but it's the person who comes in and starts to poke holes. And it's because it's our job to poke the holes. We poke the holes and then we fill them. We're solution providers, but that's how we have to get to that point. And then the fourth, and I think this ties to the topic of this episode, is that people think of us as the influencers of others. Um, and that's for good or for bad. Um, and I would say we definitely are looking at influence but for good. You know, I watched a lot of Scandal with Olivia Pope. And what I can tell you is that the clothes get a lot better in every episode. There's a lot more murder than I think either of us experience in our professional lives. Um, but Binti Harvey definitely has the style of Olivia Pope down. And that is a hard thing for most of us to compete with um, or keep <laughs> up with for, you know, for that matter. What do you think the difference between persuasion and manipulation is? So I think that there's a really fine line between the two of those, and it's rooted in intent. Um, I thought this was an excellent question, and I, I just want to make sure that if you have any questions about where I land on this, let me know. I think that both are intended to move people. 
So that's their commonality. But persuasion still allows for truth and it allows for choice. And for me, manipulation skews towards psychology-based actions that may or may not include truth and also allows um, an opportunity to take advantage of others. Um, And if we're looking at manipulation, I think that longer-term manipulation can spill over into gaslighting. And we see that in a number of different ways manifested in family relationships and political spheres and a whole bunch of different places in which that manipulation also then starts to skew perceptions of truth as well. You describe yourself as a higher ed truth teller, which I love. How do you stay committed to truth in situations where it feels like the truth might be more gray than black and white? I think that truth is black or white. I think our perceptions are gray. So that's where I think the difference comes into this, where having multiple perspectives review any situation or any communication, any plan or strategy that we're thinking about really can be helpful because that means that you have a group who can narrow in on fact. And sometimes it's really hard to identify what facts are if you all have a similar background and understanding of the situation. And that's where I think you really start to see this grayness come in. Mm -hmm. So within those providing perspectives, you have to have differences in lived experience and expertise. And I think that sometimes where we see presidential cabinets that can succumb to groupthink and begin to think that their lived experiences are the truth. And that's where we get into trouble. How do you keep yourself grounded when you find yourself in situations like that? I think that's one of those situations where you have to stop. If I could go back since I had so many undergraduate majors and have added a millionth one, it would have been psychology. Um, And I'll talk about this later because it just intertwines in so much in what we do. But I think that's where you have to stop and think about how people are feeling the situation not just how they're processing the situation. And that really gives you a a way to think through where they are and therefore how you need to approach getting to truth. I often will say things sometimes when we're in sticky situations, like name it to tame it. And I think you're right. When you have that underlying emotion, it's easier to understand what someone's motivation is because if they're scared or they're vulnerable, that reaction is totally different than someone who's coming from a place of confidence or trust. And usually we can help them bridge those situations because what they're scared of is what we can help think of. What are the consequences if you're scared in doing what you know you need to do? And what are the consequences if you're scared in not doing anything? And usually the consequences for not being a leader are significantly higher than doing what you know you need to do, even if you're vulnerable. So something that we are taught in servant leadership is that we approach persuasion through building consensus and building consensus can be grueling. It's a lot easier to be an authoritarian leader who says, this is the way and you're going to do it my way and you're going to get it done. It takes a lot of patience. It takes, um, you know, working through different personality types and the emotion of things. What tips do you have for leaders who aspire to lead in this way versus the more traditional authoritarian way of leading? I think that there's a really critical difference in being a top-down leader or being someone who is a servant leader. And that fundamentally comes down to um, the ability to listen. You have to listen and then you have to do something with what you hear. 
And often as leaders, we ask for people's opinions, believing that just asking for their opinion will help us to create buy-in. But in the end, if there's no intention of doing anything with the information gathered, then we have three potential fallouts. One is that the process, to be honest, is disingenuous, right? We want to be trusted, and that's why we do this. But then we're coming at them with a disingenuous process. The final product and any decisions that come from that are going to reflect that it was disingenuous, and we're going to actually undermine ourselves. And then the third is that there will be no further movement toward the consensus that we're trying to build. So I encourage people to listen and I encourage them in advance to plan for what they're going to do with what they hear. Um, Because if you aren't already thinking about how to incorporate that, then you aren't coming to that from a place where you are looking for consensus. And then the other thing that I would encourage, and this is It may sound counter to consensus, but it's important because this is where I see the movement towards consensus break down, is that leaders need to prepare themselves for pushback. Anytime you're trying to build consensus, there's change that's being discussed. That's what you're building consensus around. And different people react to change differently. Some of those people are going to verbalize that to you, and some are going to maybe have um, methods or um, actions that you question what their intent is. And we always have to remember is that we are trying to create change and that can be painful. The Servant Marketer Podcast is sponsored by Canahoma. Canahoma is an education marketing agency based in San Diego. Founded by longtime higher ed marketer Seth O'Dell in 2020, Canahoma has quickly grown to over 20 full-time employees serving over a dozen education institutions. And they really bring a new, unique performance-focused perspective to serving the higher ed industry. Whether you're looking for a new marketing agency to manage your media or a creative partner for your next brand campaign, do yourself a favor and check them out. You can learn more about Canahoma at canahoma.com. That's K-A-N-A-H-O-M-A.com. Mention the Servant Marketer podcast and Seth will provide you and your organization a free 30-minute consultation on the topic of your choice. Speaking from personal experience, 30 minutes with Seth O'Dell is like a masterclass in marketing you're going to want to schedule a meeting with him today. You know, a lot of my leadership style and and the ethic that I follow, the servant leadership ethic, is rooted in family systems thinking and family dynamics. And something I've tried to be really cognizant of is, you know, coalition building in the workplace. And is coalition building coming from a healthy place or is it coming from one of distrust and and unhealthy um, ways of building relationship or consent. Consensus can also be, there can be unhealthy ways of building consensus. You know, you you do a lot of like either, I don't want to use the word crisis because I think we use crisis too often to talk about what really is issues management, but there are times of crisis. What's your been your observation of like, there? what are appropriate times when an authoritarian way of leadership makes sense versus, you know, maybe the the slower consensus building servant leadership style? I think that the the luxury of time is really what is the determinant here. If you have that luxury, then that means that you have time for consensus because consensus involves people and people take time. Um, But if there is something that needs a decision that is more immediate, that's where I think the authoritarian approach works. And that means that you have um, either 
you have something really right there at your doorstep. You have people who could be harmed. You have something that necessitates a decision before you have the ability to involve others and before you have the ability to really think more strategically. This is about reaction because it's needed, not about building, which is what consensus does. But if you're using that same kind of approach, when you have the luxury of time, that's where you're telling people that you don't appreciate them, their perspectives, or how this impacts them. So I think one of the ways that we can help create consensus or use persuasion rather than other means of of moving people is to build expertise because Mm -hmm. in a time of crisis or in a time when an issue comes, we do trust those people who have the expertise to make decisions quickly, but you have to build expertise over time Mm -hmm. and you have to build trust. And I think that's something that TVP really excels at helping your clients do. What tips do you have for someone on how they can build genuine expertise? It's always fascinating to me the difference that we hear when we ask a question two different ways. And that's where I'm going to start with this. And that is when we ask someone to share expertise, we get one type of answer. If we ask them to participate because they are an expert, that's where we get something entirely different. So to me, the sharing of expertise feels more comfortable for people, especially in academia and the world we live in. Because so many people associate expertise with being the preeminent expert, right? And that's not what we're talking about. What we're really saying is, from a litmus test perspective, do you have experiences to share relative to the topic that others can learn from? That's really what we're asking from. And that can be your scholarship. That can be something that you have gone through. It could take a number of different paths. And I think that that's where we can really say through opinions and through insights that they're helping to advance their work and also the work of others. And they're sharing what they've gone through so that others can learn from the good and the bad. And that's how I like to think about expertise. So if you can say yes to either you have expertise or you are an expert and you're willing to have a measured amount of vulnerability related to sharing your words and your thoughts, then you are an expert. But again, for me, that last little bit, I just want to reiterate that, is that you're moving your industry and the topic forward. Mm. That's what expertise does. You know, there's a lot of talk about imposter syndrome. And when you said that thing about the measured vulnerability, it got me thinking about how there are so many great folks out there, people who are have expertise, have um experience things that could help us move our industry forward, move conversation socially forward that aren't using their voices. If you're, what message would you give to those people about how much the, like, what does the world need from them? I think there's two parts to that. Um, I'll go with what does the world need from those who have the ability to participate in the conversations and the circles that you and I are in and what, is needed from us is to invite others into that space. And then what is needed from those who are being invited in is to lean in and participate. And that would be my suggestion. The American Marketing Association conference is coming up. And one of the things that I'm stressing so significantly is that I have learned as much in the sessions as I have learned with my colleagues that are part of my network already, as I have learned with others that I've met that are new connections there. Because 
sometimes it's in how they're asking their questions as much as is what they're sharing about their own experiences. Both cause me to have a moment to pause and think about what I know and what I don't know and where else I need to learn. And that's where I think we really need to start thinking about these opportunities is what does that look like? Mm-hmm. And I know my introduction into sharing my experiences and my my expertise really was because others allowed me into that space. And so one of my goals always is to um, widen that network to include others as well. You know, I did this master's in organizational leadership. It's the whole reason why this podcast exists. And I went into it thinking like this program is going to teach me how to be a better, better manager. But what I learned over time in the two and two and a half years that it took me to finish my master's was it really was about creating a radically reflective process and experience. And that's what this program was centered on was that leadership is about radical reflection and looking at our own motivations, our own behaviors, our own triggers, because it's a lot like parenting. Like when I first became a parent, I thought, okay, I have this little baby and now my job is to like mold this little person. And what you pretty quickly realize is you will be humbled over and over again, because that's not it at all. It's about this little person molds you more than you could ever mold them. How do you reflect how do you look at your motivations and behavior and be radically reflective? I process with my fingers on a keyboard. So um, everybody probably thinks that I process verbally. And the reality is that's not how I think best, especially about my own performance and, and how I want to grow as a leader and as a, as a human being. Um, I'm pretty prolific with op-eds and written pieces. But the reality is that um, nobody sees most of my work because those words are me debriefing myself, what I learned, what I could have done better, and what I want to carry forward into my next experience. And I love that you use the words motivation and behaviors because those two words really are at the center of how I think about my reflection. Um, And I'll give you an example. Actually, I was just, I wrote this down while you were talking. Um, I am not a good manager. I'm not, but I am a really good mentor. So that shift in my own thinking about what, my interactions are like with my team. I had to have that, that flip for myself that if I know I'm a bad manager, because to me that feels too hands-on and micromanaging and in the weeds, how can I think about mentoring people? Because for me, that feels more about their growth and then that still gets to the product. So um, my team will tell you I am not a good manager, but I do want to make sure that I'm providing the resources and the opportunity and access to me in thinking about myself as a mentor. So, um, so that's just how I think about myself and, and reflect. Um, I also need to get to back to running. I know you and I talked about this a little bit because that used to be a time pre-pandemic um, that was just for me to process life so that I wasn't thinking about the pain or the distances tied to the run. But instead, I was thinking about relationships and I was thinking about next steps and I was processing in a different way than when I normally write. So um, even just thinking about that uh, earlier today, I thought Jenny might be my motivation to get back uh, to running. So there you go. Well, there is <laughs> but, something there is something to be said for those, for exercise, for going on vacation. Like yes. I always find that the biggest problems that I've been mulling over and just can't seem to get to a solution come when I'm not focused on finding a solution. Yes, I think you're right. And I just recently on LinkedIn posted an article that was talking about when 
your staff and your team doesn't have enough time to have hobbies, their creativity, their productivity, and their motivation decrease. And I think that's true. We need to allow ourselves that space for ourselves and for some downtime. And I think that's what we need to, what we need to have learned from the pandemic um, more than anything else. You just did something really interesting with your company is that you went to a four-day work week. Yes. I'd love to talk about the process to that and how you're looking at that experience for your team. Um, I love talking about this topic because this was a moment of listening. Going back to what we talked about earlier, there isn't a way that you can live in the United States right now and especially work in higher education and not hear about how burned out people are and about how many people are looking for new jobs. And we've always been a remote company, so there, it's not like I could suggest that there would be more work from home time. But instead, I started to think through what would make sense for our team based on where we are, because I want to keep my own people as well. Um, and so the four-day work week made sense to me. How would that work? We piloted it over the summer. And how would we still make sure that our clients feel that they aren't forgotten? Um, and would we have, my big question was, would we still have the same output? Because as I said at the beginning, we do good work and we do a lot of it. And what I found was moving to four, eight hour work days, we actually have more collaboration. The output for my team members is greater. Our creativity has gone through the roof. And I see this strategic approach to what we're doing. We have to be more strategic because we're spending less hours. And I have just been so impressed with my team by being so responsible with this pilot and now our implementation and also just killing it, to be honest, with the work that they're doing. Um, and I would encourage others to really think about if you give your team the time to decompress and to have hobbies and to get back to running and to... Um, uh, some of them are even focusing more on uh, professional development um, in different ways. All of that helps in the workplace. I interrupted you too. You were gonna, I think you had a few more things to say about radical reflection, but I appreciate you sharing that story because I think it's for the moment we are in right now, it shows your leadership style, the way that you are willing to adapt and meet the needs of your team, which to me, kudos to you because that's servant leadership in action. Well, and I would say I have to give credit to Erin Hennessy because she is such a great idea provider and also sounding board for me, which is a perfect segue into my other points about reflection. And that's that I think everybody needs a trusted set of colleagues to talk about the industry with. Um, and that's really a way to process and to get feedback. And it's shifted and shaped how I view and process situations. That's a great example of it. Um, you and I serve as a sounding board to each other as well. And I think those individuals always don't always agree with me. And that's part of why I talk to them. I want to be challenged. I want not only to be the person who is the devil's advocate, but to have others be devil's advocate to my positions. I've received some great feedback from them. And going back to how you started this, I don't know that there's anything more humbling than asking your family for feedback as well. So my daughter might just be the best provider of unvarnished feedback um, and also note for me when my perspective in storytelling feels like it's starting to veer away from the black and white truth as well. Kids are a great way to keep you honest. <laughs> I, my five, I have a five-year-old who literally remembers everything. So I agree 100% with that. Um, you 
have had the privilege to work with leaders in all sorts of different institutions all over. And I'm curious what you've observed in what are the characteristics that make them effective or persuasive? I, in answering this question, I thought through three leaders in my life and all of them had the same characteristic that I just have been humbled by. And that is that the best leaders I've worked with have balanced challenge and support for those who work with them. And I don't say that lightly because that personalized approach takes more time and it takes getting to know people. It means that you have to observe the strengths, the weaknesses, the untapped opportunity in your team, and you have to provide them with the resources, including you as a resource to help them grow. And I believe honest feedback is a sign of love and respect if it's shared in a way that aligns with your relationship and is intended to help somebody grow. Um, and my, my three leaders that I thought of, all three of them fit exactly those characteristics. Um, another trait I think that the best leaders have to have is that they have to be willing to admit when they're wrong. And that doesn't have to be a public shaming. It doesn't have to be a big production. It can be as simple as a change of course and the words that you use um, within your rationale for the shift. Um, but course correction isn't always easy, especially if you've tied your name and reputation to an action. So that one I know sounds simple, but might be really, really hard for a number of people. And then the last one, I think this one is critically important, is that effective leaders don't take personally what isn't personal. If it's personal, take it personal and learn from it and move on and, 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 and change how you behave. But if it's not personal, don't take it personally. So many people wrap their identities around their professions and their positions, and they can't allow themselves to get feedback without taking it personally. That means to me, and I always look in their eyes and you can tell when someone is starting to take something personally, it means that they're losing perspective of who they are and what should matter. And I know it's easier said than done, and I can take things personally as well. I had an example of that this week for myself, but we need to define criteria for ourselves to determine what should we, sh what should we learn from feedback versus what we should feel from the feedback. Those are very, very, very different things. It's such a great way to delineate because when I think, you know, so many of us in these fields in marketing communications, we, our reputations really matter to us. The work in a lot of cases feels personal because we put so much effort in ourselves into it. And I mean, I could give an example of just this week, right? Where um, I, I have an example of that, of feeling... Per, like personally affronted by someone's opinion on something. And for me, what I have to really continuously work on is being really cognizant of the space between being stimulated by something and how I respond to it. I would imagine in your role, you are almost always inundated with stimulus. Yes. What are, what are your tools or tips for how you like slow down or what do you do when you're in between those, that space? Um, I take Adderall, but that's an entirely different topic. <laughs> I think it's finding something that will help you process. I'm a big fan. Um, if anybody ever watches me on a Zoom, they can usually hear my keys clicking or they can see me typing or they can watch me writing something down because that allows me to free my brain to be present in the conversation and not worry about missing the details. And I feel like when we hyper fixate on the details, 
we lose the bigger it. So how do you help yourself um, get to that point of comfort to be present fully in the conversation? And that usually helps to take away some of um, the moments where you start to take things personally, because there is this disconnect usually between what was said or intended and how it was received and allowing yourself to be present allows you to see all of those cues in a much different way. We should clarify that you take Adderall for a diagnosed medical yes, condition. Yes, yes, 100%. Yes. I am diagnosed with ADHD. <laughs> so now everybody will know my parents yes. listen to everything, and this is how my parents will find out. Although they, with 47 years experience with me, they probably know. Probably so not yes. a surprise. Yeah. Mom and dad, yeah. <laughs> everything is now clearer for you of uh, many, many things. Well, you know, I think... I think it's interesting though, you know, when you say like what your different coping mechanisms are, because it's different for everyone. Like when I was in college, I could study while the TV was on and I had roommates who were like, I don't know how you do that. And I'm like, I, I, that's the only way I can do this. Like, um, I took a class in my master's on listening and one of our assignments was to sit for 20 minutes in silence every day. And it made my skin crawl. And so I, I recognize it's an area of growth for me, but People cope in different ways. And so I think you bring up a really good point about like what works for you, someone else might perceive as like they're not paying attention, but that's not always the case. Right. And I'll give another example of that. We have one of our colleagues um, that I'm, I'm guessing some people think she's a lurker on the calls, right? Because she doesn't say anything. But when she does say something, she will have wrapped everything up in that conversation, So some of us are processing verbally. I'm a verbal processor in some meetings. And she is allowing the totality to let her process. And I think that's one of those interesting moments where we need to get so much better at understanding how people think, how they process, and how they contribute. Because each of those can be very, very different. um, But people bring great things to the table. I, in my master's classes, one of the classes they had, a group of us and kind of self-identified, we went through a person, like the personality test and self-identified as either introvert or extrovert. And then they had us sit across from each other in a room and talk to each other about the way we see the world. And I was on the extroverted side and a, a friend of mine was on the introverted side. And she said, you extroverts just say whatever you want in the moment. You just say it and you just do it. She's like, when I speak up, when I say something, I have put this in a gift box. I have wrapped it. I have put a bow on it and I am delivering this thought to you. And it was a moment where I was like, oh my gosh. And so often extroverts are like, yeah, thanks. Good. Moving on to the next thing. And it gave me that moment to think, oh, wow. Like, they have prepared this in a way that is different than the way my brain processes. And I need to be more cognizant of giving them that space and time that's respectful to their type of communication style. I agree. I agree. And interestingly, just so that you know, I'm an introvert. So I play an extrovert because that's what my job is. I have half as much on time as I need recovery time because I really do have to put myself out there in different ways than I feel most comfortable. Yeah. And I can imagine in your role where you are on and talking to folks a lot, it must feel sometimes draining. What are some signals to you that like you're hitting a point where 
downtime is like no longer optional? I think it, there's a number of different things. Um, my team will see that I do start to have a harder time listening and it's because I feel like I need to get everything out so that I can get to that space sooner. I would also say we have made a very conscious decision within our organization that for the most part, we've moved back to um, phone calls and away from Zoom because just being on camera is that much more of sharing who you are, if you will. Um, and for an introvert, it takes more. So we made that decision concurrent with going to a four day week early in the summer to move to calls. And just that shift has really added to my ability to be on for that much longer throughout the day. So my husband seemed to manage to avoid most of COVID without actually having to be part of Zoom culture. He was lucky. Like he He's was lucky. He was so lucky and he was, so working in the, he was working in the field and now his career has transitioned into a new role where he's, he's being introduced to it. And he said to me, and this was something I had completely forgot about, but he was like, how do you not watch yourself the whole time you're on Zoom? <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, I forgot about the early days of Zoom and the exhaustion and the amount of energy it took when the whole time you were just like, why does my face look like this? Like, why, why is my hair like this? What's wrong with my eyebrows? Maybe that was just me, but that's how I experienced I, the early I had days. no idea that I had these wrinkles. And then what was <laughs> I going to do about them? I'm pointing at my forehead. Y'all can't see me, but I'm, these wrinkles in my forehead. And then we were in lockdown. So there was nothing I could do about it except stare at the wrinkles. Yeah. Yeah. Same. So it's been funny to <laughs> see that side of him where he's like, I just look at myself. I'm like, yes, that's how it was in the very beginning. Now we're, now we're used to it, but so something that you and I have talked about a lot is in intuition and decision-making or judgment. I would love to hear more about how intuition factors into your leadership style. Um, so I think some people call it intuition. We usually talk about listening to our guts and our gut sense. Um, I would say that I'm someone who reads a room reads people, and reads relationships very quickly whenever I enter a new situation. So many people only pay attention to verbal responses and they miss the nonverbal cues that are always present in a situation. So when I say my gut tells me X, Y, or Z, what I'm really telling people is that I have performed my due diligence on the topic in advance. I've read up, I've read bios, I've done um, all of my background work. I've listened to what has been said. I've assessed the participants in the situation. I've mentally run through examples of analogous situations. And those collective points of data tell me X, Y, and Z. So I think so often people think it really is something that is shooting from the hip. And it's not. Um, so I like to say that it's my superpower um, because my intuition is very often right. And the reality is, it's the work that I had to do to have the data points and the insights to make that decision that was right. Um, and I have to work hard, and you do as well, to build that reference library so that I can run up in my head against analogous situations. I read a lot of newspapers. I read a lot of online outlets. We listen to podcasts, read books. I'm finishing a doctoral degree that's focused really on organizational structures and all of that is part of what I'm using to help influence what most people will think is my gut sense. 
I think that's really interesting because when I reflect on intuition for me, first of all, I've had to get better at following it. Like yes. I've realized. And you have to trust lot, yourself. Yeah. I've realized as I've gotten older, I'll be 40 in January. Like the times when I haven't, when that first inkling, when I haven't followed it are times that I usually end up in situations that I regret or it doesn't feel right. Um, but when I reflect on like, for me, where intuition comes from, and this is like a little personal, but I think it comes from having kind of a hypervigilant childhood, <laughs> like of, right. of reading rooms and people and behaviors from a really young age. And sometimes I wish I could shut that off, but I can't, it's how I'm wired. And oftentimes it feels a little bit like canary in the coal mine because I see mm-hmm. things sometimes before other people do. And that's really challenging because then, you know, you kind of go up against this perception, especially as a woman of like, you don't want to be drama. You don't want to be dramatic, but I love the way you frame it about, it's not just that gut instinct, right? Like it is coming from other places that are informing that intuition. Exactly. And my husband, I love the way you describe that because my husband sometimes looks at me and he'll just whisper, I see dead people. And he knows it's because he can see me processing all of those different pieces and my gut is starting to tell me something. So I, I agree with you. It's that it it comes from a childhood. Um, and, and maybe this is growing up in a situation in which I came, I come from a Hispanic family and went to a very predominantly white school and I had to figure out what the cues were and what was expected of me and how people behaved and how I should be and then go home and kind of do the reverse in that situation as well. And I think that is one of those experiences that I don't, I wouldn't shut off because it's so um, foundational in who I am, but it really taught me to look at situations first as an outsider and then allow myself to become part of whatever it is. Mm, So interesting. Well, as we wrap up, it's been so great to have you on this episode. Um, just feels like one of those full circle moments from seeing you at a conference a couple <laughs> years ago and then getting to call you a friend and a colleague. Where can people find you? You can find our website at uh, TVP Communications, spelled out with an S at the end, dot com. And my email address is Teresa, T-E-R-E-S-A at TVP Communications dot com. On Twitter, that's where I um, engage probably the most. I'm at TV Parrot, Parrot like the bird. And you can also find me on LinkedIn, Teresa Valerio Parrot. We have reached my favorite part of every episode. It's what I call servant marketing snacks. And it's where I ask my guests to include examples from all sorts of categories. These can be books, podcasts, TED Talks, TV series, you name it, movies, people you know or don't know, to give us examples of what Um, might be a good example of servant leadership or servant marketing out in our culture. Okay. I'm going to share my favorite book of all times with you. And I have bought this book for so many people. So if you've not read it, you're going to have to check your mailbox because I will mail it to you. A prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving. Have you read it? No. Oh, okay. I'm going to send it to you. It is about someone who is a bit of a misfit and how he becomes so central to a situation and to growth and to um, processing for a number of different people. So anybody who can uh, talk about a prayer for Owen Meany is a friend for me. So I will mail you a copy today. 
you know I'm a bookworm, so I will read I know. it immediately. It's going to yeah. be good. It's so good. I, I, I feel like John Irving at this point should probably give me a cut of the proceeds because those are coming directly from me. So, and that was, that's a book I read when I was in high school and it still has stuck with me to this day. And then this one is really to see if our colleague, Matt McFadden is going to listen because I thought of this one and I busted out laughing and I have to say it because I do think it's an example of servant leadership. But if you look at Dalton played by Patrick Swayze in the great movie Roadhouse, I think that also is such a fantastic example of servant leadership. Truly go back, think about it, watch it again. It's on TBS every weekend, I think. Um, I think that is a fantastic example that might be something that uh, people have seen. I love those examples. I love finding servant leadership in pop culture because it is everywhere. Yes. Teresa, is there anything we didn't cover that you'd like to add as we wrap up this interview? Um, I just want to thank you for the way in which you are framing the thoughtful conversations that you're having and you're talking about leadership. Um, I think we all know that so many people have a podcast and are just weighing in on whatever um, feels good in the moment. And for you, this is so foundational. And um, the way that you talk about this and the way that you have taken to heart both the principles and also what this means and what the impact can be, I'm always inspired by that. I think one of the first times that we talked, you brought servant leadership into the conversation. And I remember just thinking, she's deep. <laughs> so I, can't, you I, I can't help myself. It's like... I often describe, you know, I had never heard of servant leadership before I started looking for a master's program. And then I found at Gonzaga that they were offering this. And it was, I tell people the first class I took was servant leadership and reading about it was like watching my kids open gifts on Christmas morning. It was, it was just like finding a home and also finding validation in that there is this way to lead that is humanistic and is caring and is compassionate, which Unfortunately, for a lot of people, you don't ever experience, you might never experience that in your career. And I appreciate that feedback so much because it is a passion for me. Um, and I will talk about it with anyone, anytime. I can't help myself. Well, when you go back and listen to this episode, I want you to listen to how excited you just got when you started talking about it. So make sure that you're, you're including that in more ways in your life because it truly is inspiring. Oh, thank you, Teresa. It's been so great to have you today. Thank you, Jenny. Thanks for joining me today for The Servant Marketer. This podcast is produced by So Very Petty Media with post-production support provided by the amazing team at Westport Studios. This podcast is sponsored by Canahoma, an education marketing agency based in San Diego. The music is The Mountains Are Alive by Sounds by Sanders. If you want to learn more, find past episodes, or want more servant marketing snacks, head over to servantmarketer.co. I hope today's podcast helped you think about life and your work in a new way. And like St. Ignatius said, go forth and set the world on fire. <laughs>